Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to begin in a moment in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, starting in that 18th verse. Seventy years ago, there was a town in a valley in the state of Maine called Flagstaff Village. Now, that town is still there, but if you want to visit it, you're going to need some scuba gear because that town today is literally underwater. Back in the 1940s, the state of Maine began to discuss and they eventually decided to build a hydroelectric dam beside that valley, and they informed all of the people that they would have to relocate because soon the entire town would be submerged. This happened in September of 1950. Flagstaff Village had been home to about 300 people. And most people consider the town to be very well kept. But after that announcement was made, and in the years leading up to its destruction, the town fell into a state of disrepair. We can understand why the residents saw no reason whatsoever to bother maintaining it. Why would you bother to fill the potholes and the sidewalks and in the streets of a town that will soon be underwater? Why would you paint your house knowing that it will soon be at the bottom of a lake? One resident described the attitude of that town and the decay of that town with this statement. He said, where there is no hope for the future, there's no power in the present. What an amazing and what a true statement. Where there's no hope for the future, there's no power in the present. And I believe that's true on a spiritual level as well. This morning, I want to talk to you about this theme, hope in our suffering. Hope is a part of, or suffering is a part of life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. We know that some people suffer more than others, but there's no one here who gets a free pass. We do, however, suffer differently from the people in the world around us because we suffer with hope. Our suffering is not a hopeless suffering like that of the world, which sees no purpose, no meaning, no significance in the sufferings of this life. We believe, like Paul says later on in verse 28, that yes, God will make all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I've been preaching through Romans on Sunday nights, and I recently said to the Sunday night crowd that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. And one of the things that is happening in this passage, in particular, Paul talks about this hope that we have through our faith in Christ and why it is we have it 
and how it affects the way that we live. Why is it that we can have hope in the midst of our suffering? And there are four things in this passage in particular that I want you to see for reasons for this hope that we have, that we can cling to. First of all, one reason is our incomparable glory. Because we have waiting for us an incomparable glory. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What a beautiful statement. What an encouraging statement. Paul is weighing these two things. On the one hand, he is weighing the sufferings of this time. And by the way, Paul was not a, a beginner. He was not a novice when it came to this thing called suffering. In fact, he was the expert. He knew all about it. He'd been beaten. He'd been whipped, stoned, and left for dead. He'd been shipwrecked exiled, run out of town. He'd been snake bitten. He'd gone hungry and thirsty and naked and cold. He had been sick. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the suffering in your life, but this is the suffering that Paul knew. And listen to me carefully. We should never be surprised by suffering in this life? We should never be caught off guard when this world treats us exactly the way it treated our Lord. Paul is weighing, on the one hand, his present sufferings, but then he also weighs the glory which shall be revealed in us. A few weeks ago, we looked at that story when Moses was on Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord and how he came down from the mountain and his face was glowing. The Hebrews feared him. Moses' countenance was changed after just a glimpse of God's glory. But as we are going to see, that's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us and will flow through us. But Paul is weighing these two things, our present sufferings and our future glory. And he says in verse 18, for I consider. That word consider is a mathematical term. It means to calculate. Sometimes a patient will be in the hospital and they'll be asked a certain question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is your pain? Ever been asked that question before? Some of you are doctors and nurses. You've asked that question a few times. A one means hardly any pain at all. A 10 means unbearable pain. But you put a number on it. It's as if Paul is trying to put a number on the sufferings of this present time, on the one hand, and he's trying to put a number on the glories to be revealed to us on the other hand, and he comes to this conclusion that he just can't do it. 
He cannot do it because although our sufferings are real and they are difficult, the sufferings we experience now are so small compared to the glory that we will experience, they just cannot be compared. Now, why is it that we cannot compare them? Well, for one, our suffering is earthly, but our glory is heavenly. Oh, there are words that you can use to describe the pain that you are going through, but there are no words to describe the glory that God has for us. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible says you can't even imagine what this glory will be like, much less try to describe it. Our suffering is temporary, but our glory is eternal. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Yes, your affliction is real, but the longest and the greatest tribulation that you will go through in this life is but for a moment compared to eternity. And if that's not enough, our suffering is finite. Oh, but our glory is infinite. You think about that valley that you had to pass through, that difficult trial in your life, when the diagnosis was what you feared, or when the pink slip came, or when the business failed, or a loved one died, or when that marriage fell apart, as intense as your grief was in that moment, Christian brother, Christian sister, that does not and that will not compare to the intensity of the glory that will be yours and mine one day. When this corruption is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, when you can live in a place that's untainted by sin in the presence of God, the one who loved you and died for you, sent his son to die for you, the Bible doesn't promise us that we're going to have exemption from suffering. But listen, it does promise us that there is no comparison, comparison between our present sufferings and the glory of that is waiting for us. And that's why for the believer, the best is always yet to come. That's why we have hope even in our suffering because of this incomparable glory that we have that's waiting for us. There's another reason why we have hope in our suffering because of creation's future redemption. Because of creation's future redemption. Notice verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Several times in this passage, Paul is going to use personal terms to describe creation. Creation is not a person, but it's as if creation is acting 
like a person would act. So in verse 19, Paul mentions the earnest expectation of creation. He said that creation eagerly awaits something. Have you ever waited for something for so long, so eagerly, with so much anticipation? It's as if you were just standing on your tippy toes, waiting for it to come. I was engaged to joy for 10 months before we got married, and I kid you not, for every single day during those 10 months, I was able to tell you the exact number of days until our wedding. I could tell you 312 more days, or 257 more days, or 109 more days. I was eagerly waiting I think it's the only time in my life I ever prayed, Lord, come quickly, but not too quickly. Well, Paul said that creation is eagerly waiting. You say, what is creation waiting for? We know what we're waiting for, but what is creation waiting for? What does he mean by that? Notice he says, for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, notice that word revealing. I don't think it's an accident. The, the Greek word there for revealing is the word which translates apocalypse. He's referring to the end times. He's referring, I believe, to tribulation. He's referring to judgment. And through all of these things, what's going to happen? It's going to be revealed who is and who is not a child of God. Because sometimes... It's hard for us to tell who's real and who's not, who is the wheat, who's the tares, but the Bible says one day this will be revealed, the revealing of the sons of God. Now that leads us to a question. Why is creation eagerly waiting for this to be revealed? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Paul said the reason why creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God is because there is a connection between the curse of sin upon man and the curse that was placed upon creation. And likewise, there's a connection between man's redemption and creation's redemption. One of the biggest questions that a lot of people have when they look at this world around us and they see everything that's wrong. People ask, even non-believers will ask, what's wrong? What happened? How did the world get this way? Because we can all see that this world is broken. The Bible answers these questions right here. It says something happened at a specific point in time. Creation was subjected to Futility. Now, that word futility means that it is not capable 
of doing everything it was intended to do. Now, I don't know about you, I love nature, I love national parks, my family took a little mini sabbatical, we visited six national parks this summer, creation, it's beautiful, yes, it's glorious, creation points to the creator, yes, flowers are still beautiful, yes, mountains are still grand, yes, the forests are still magnificent, and the stars are still majestic, yes, all of that is true, but the Bible says at the same time, things are not the way they are supposed to to be. Heard about a man who bought a piece of land and went to work real hard on that land and he removed all the weeds and the overgrown bushes and the rocks. He smoothed out the soil and then he built a beautiful home and put some trees and flowers around it and uh, dug a small pond beside it. Somebody came by and saw this and said, wow, look what God gave you. Look at the land God gave you and the house God gave you and the flowers and the trees and the pond God gave you. That guy got a little irritated. He said, buddy, you should have seen what this looked like when God had it all to himself. (laughs) Well, there's a reason for that. When God created man, he gave him dominion over creation. He gave him dominion over this world. And that is why The moment man sinned, God put the curse of sin not only on him, but also upon this world which was under his authority. You say, well, why would God do that? Because God is just, and he would not permit that man, while an act of rebellion against him, would enjoy a perfect creation. And so in Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, God said, the ground is cursed because of you. Now you're going to labor. Now it's going to be hard. Now you're going to sweat. He said, now the ground will produce thorns. There were no thorns Before the curse of sin, what happened? God subjected creation to this curse. But notice at the end of verse 20, the Bible says that when God did this, he did it in hope. What does that mean? That means that this is not permanent. It means that this curse is not the end. And that's why Paul said in verse 21, one day creation itself is going to be delivered from its bondage to corruption. There's something better that is coming, not only for the man or woman who's been saved, but there's something that is better that is coming for creation when our salvation is made complete. And this is why Paul says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Paul said creation itself is groaning. Do you realize that when nature becomes deadly, there are two things going on. There is the physical cause, but there's also the spiritual cause. There's the natural explanation, yes. There's also the supernatural explanation. When there's an earthquake like the one that happened in Haiti recently, it's not just a matter of two tectonic plates rubbing against each other beneath the surface. No, there's more to it than that. 
When there is an earthquake, it's not just a large air mass that is being heated and fueled by the ocean waters below. Yes, that's true, but there's more to it than that. Paul said there's a spiritual component to this. He said, what's happening in all of these things? Creation is groaning. Creation is groaning, Paul said, like a woman who's in labor. Now, I'm not a mother, so you might think, well, pastor, you're not qualified to talk about this. Well, guess what? The apostle Paul wasn't a mother either. You don't have to be a mom to understand the point that he's making. For example, if you're in the hospital and you hear a mother groaning, that groaning could mean one of a couple of things. If you are in the oncology department and you hear that mother, that woman groaning, that's a terrible groaning. It is the groaning of suffering that leads to death. If, however, you are in the maternity ward and you hear a woman groaning, that's a different kind of groaning because that is a groaning that leads to life. And when a mother groans in labor, it's because there's something, or rather someone beautiful, who's going to emerge. Paul said creation is groaning just like that mother. It groans because there's a new creation that's going to emerge. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this new heaven and this new earth. John in Revelation talked about this new heaven and this new earth where he said God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes where one day there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. The old order of things will have passed away. That means the lion will lie down next to the lamb without eating the lamb. And so we see again this connection just as our sin brought corruption to creation in the same way Our salvation, when it's made complete, will bring restoration to creation. That means one day creation will be restored to what God meant for it to be. And listen, there won't be anything at all in creation, not a single thing that will take away from us our joy or our happiness in the presence of the Lord. Creation is groaning. And if we are listening, it tells us that there's something that is better on the way. This gives us hope, even in the midst of our sufferings. Now, there are a couple more things I want you to notice why we can have this hope in our sufferings. Third, because of the Spirit's work in our lives. Because of the Spirit's work in our lives. Look at verse 23. Not only that... But we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse, 20, verse 22, Paul said that creation groans. In the very next verse, he said that we groan, and this groaning What is it for? The redemption of our body. You know, the body is the one part of us that has not yet been redeemed. You are in Christ. And that's why 
You get older and things hurt. It didn't used to hurt. And so what do we do? We groan. But not only that, maybe there are dreams that you had that were not realized. And so what do you do? You groan. We see injustice around us. We get angry and we groan. This groaning that we have inside of us is a longing for something better that this world will never be able to provide ever. But there's something about this groaning in us. Paul says it's different from the groaning in the world around us. Notice this statement in verse 23. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan. Now, when Paul spoke of us having the first fruits of the Spirit, almost certainly the church at Rome would have thought about that story in the book of Numbers chapter 13. When Israel was being sent to the promised land, and they sent the 12 spies who scoped out the land, they brought back a report. But not only that, but the Bible says they brought back some of the first fruits. They brought back examples of the fruit that they collected while in the land in order to show the people that, yes, the promised land really is as bountiful as God said that it is. Well, unfortunately, even at that, they did not trust God to give it to them, but that's another story. These fruits, these first fruits, were a picture of what God had in store for them. Likewise, we are waiting for our own promised land of heaven. And while we are waiting, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit given to you that moment that you were saved, who lives in us and works through us as a sample of what we can look forward to. Every time the Spirit fills us, every time He empowers us, every time He comforts us, every time He guides us, every time He uses us, every time He does in us and through us what we could never do on our own, every time He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we know that this is the Spirit at work in us, not of us. The more we experience these first fruits, the more we groan for that completed work which God has promised to perform in us. And once again, this gives us hope. This gives us hope because we have a taste of what we can look forward to. It gives us hope even in the midst of our suffering. One more reason why we can have hope even when we suffer, and that is the faithfulness of God's promise. I love verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? For what he sees. That moment you were saved, that moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, confessing him as your Lord. The Bible says you were placed into this hope. Now, this word hope, Romans 8, it simply means the confident expectation that God will do what he said he would do. 
Hope here simply means faith in the promises of God. That's why Paul said that if it's seen, it's not hope. Our future glory is unseen. The new heaven and the new earth are unseen. The glorifications of our, bod- of our bodies is unseen. So we have this hope. We believe these things even though with our eyes we have not seen them. Let me just give you an example of, of how this works in our lives. This summer, when we were visiting all those national parks, my family visited Yellowstone. And while we were at Yellowstone, if you are at Yellowstone National Park, you have to visit the world's most famous geyser, Old Faithful. In fact, I think it's a law that if you go to Yellowstone, you must visit Old Faithful. And so our family gathered and we sat down in the appropriate place and we waited for over an hour and a half. Now, on the particular day we were there, it wasn't bright and sunny. No, it was cold and it was windy and it was raining. And yet we sat and we waited completely unprepared. Waiting for Old Faithful to erupt, we sat there wet and shivering. Even though none of us had ever seen this with our eyes, but we had this hope. We had this hope that if we sat there and if we waited long enough, eventually, yes, we would see thousands of gallons of water shooting hundreds of feet in the air. And sure enough, after a while... It happened, and we celebrated, not because of Old Faithful, we celebrated because we would never have to do it again. (laughs) But why did we have that hope? Our hope in Old Faithful was based upon our belief that it would do in the future what it had done in the past. Likewise, we have this hope in God. First Peter 1 calls it our living hope. It is our belief that God will do in the future what he has done in the past. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And likewise, based upon what he has done in the past, we believe that when Christ returns in the future, the dead in Christ will be raised. We believe that the same God who never failed us in the past will never fail us in the future. We believe that the same God who has kept every promise to us until now will continue to do so in the future. This is why we have this hope. And this hope, it does something to us. Look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. The more we cling to this hope, the more God causes us to persevere. The more we grow, the stronger we get. One day, the day comes when You're able to do something you could never have done before. You're able to endure things you never could have endured before. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul. That anchor is what keeps you in place. 
when the storms of life and the currents of this life are all going against you. One park I haven't been to is Niagara Falls. I haven't been there, but I have read that if you go far enough upstream, there eventually will come this place in the river where the water is calm enough for boats to navigate. And there, I'm told, you can go fishing. If you're careful, you can swim. But there is a large sign around that place in the river that's so big, nobody can miss it. And it asks the people in their boats a simple question. Do you have an anchor? You see, for them in that place, that is a matter of life and death. Because if you are at that place in that water and your engine stalls, your boat, if you do not have an anchor, it will drift into the rapids and carry you over the falls and you will most certainly die. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to tell you our boats have stalled. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the currents of this world are strong. And they would pull us to destruction. And so I just want to close by asking you that question. Do you have an anchor? Has there been that moment in your life where you placed your hope, your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for your sins and that he rose again, confessing him as Lord of your life. Let this hope be your anchor today. Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that even in times of suffering, we can have this hope, this living hope, this confident expectation that you will do everything you said you would do, that you will be faithful, that you will keep your promises. And we thank you for that. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to do our own calculations, especially those who are here today who perhaps are going through especially difficult trials, that we would see, as did Paul, that there is no comparing these present temporary sufferings to the glory that is going to be revealed one day for all who know Christ, the glory that we will experience in us and through us forever and forever. Help us, oh God, to take our eyes off of our circumstances and how bad our problems may seem at the moment and to set our eyes on things above, to remember what we have to look forward to. God, I pray for anyone here today who does not yet have this anchor, this hope in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that 
in this moment. They wouldn't wait another moment. They wouldn't wait another day to cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I trust you. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again. And so right now, I want to give you all that I am and all that I have. I pray that even now that would be their prayer of salvation, that this would be their day of salvation. I ask that your spirit would do what only you can do in the hearts and lives of people. And God, would you help all of us present to live out this hope? It's one thing, God, when the world sees us having hope in the midst of smooth sailing when all is well and and we don't seem to have the same problems that the world does, but when they see this hope in the midst of our suffering God, that's when our lives stand out. That's when the world wants an explanation and we can give them the answer, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God, help us not just to hear these things, but to do them and to live this out and to put this hope that we have on display for the whole world to see. Show us, Lord, if we fail to do that, that we might confess that before you. Show us any other unconfessed sins in our lives that we need to bring before you today. And we'll give you all the thanks and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you just continue for a moment in an attitude of prayer? Very, very briefly, I'm just curious. Anybody here today that would just say, Pastor, be praying for me because I need to have and I need to display that hope in suffering. I said at the beginning of the message, we all suffer in life. No one is exempt from that. But you would say... I'm in one of those times of life where it seems the trials are especially difficult and I need to display this hope that we have that you talked about this morning. So so pray for me. Anybody that would just say, that's where I'm at, keep me in prayer, Pastor, just by lifting up a hand so that I can remember you. Any others? Amen. Anybody here today, let me just ask you this. Anybody here today that would say, I need this hope. There's not been that moment, there's not been that point in my life where I've truly surrendered to Christ, making him Lord of my life. Maybe you've attended church for many years. Maybe you've read the Bible. Maybe you've done some religious things, but there hasn't been that, po- that moment of surrender where you confessed him as Lord and you would say, I need that anchor right now. So, so pray for me. Anybody that would say that just by lifting up a hand, that's where you are right now. I want to encourage you to do something at the end of the service. I'm going to put on my mask and I'll be standing at the front. And this is for the time being how we're still doing it. We call this our invitation. We invite you to come. And if I can meet with you and pray with you, Pastor Joe will be available as well. But if you need to take that step, if you would just come and say, Pastor, I need that anchor. I need to know how I can have my hope in Christ. And uh, we'd love to just sit down with you or make an appointment if you'd like and talk to you what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, But I want to encourage you to do that. For those of you that are watching online, there's going to be a number that appears uh, on the screen. We would just ask you to send a text message to that number, 786-600-2829. And if you send a text message to that number, um, uh, we'll receive that. And at the end of the service, we'll send out the link uh, to our online connection card. And if you fill that out, you can let us know what is your commitment this morning, whether to follow Christ or if you want to take the baptism class uh, like Ricky and Nellie did. If you want to uh, know about our church or about membership, uh, we would invite you to do that. You can indicate that on the card and send send that to us. 